In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Well, first of all, let me just begin with a little announcement. I, I hope temperature-wise you're comfortable. Redeemer has been struggling this summer. They, the air condition went out for the second time this summer, and thankfully about a month ago they were able to work on it during the Sunday and fix it. And so we were we had air conditioning, but they discovered yesterday it had gone out again, and so the air conditioning is only working at about half capacity right now. So hopefully you're fine. Uh, I'm a little warm, but I then again have a few layers on, so we should pray for a redeemer in this air conditioning situation. I'm sure Greg Stump is tired of dealing with it, as I would be. And also, let me just say thank you to Father Steve for celebrating last week and to Matthew Green for preaching last week, which made it possible for me to be in Minnesota at the American Benedictine Academy meeting, and perhaps as importantly, to visit with some folks that I know there, former students, uh, Abby Diaz's parents are there, good family friends, and so had a nice, enjoyable time. It was only in the 70s. Uh, it was beautiful, so that was uh, very nice to, to be away for that, and uh, turns out I was elected to be the next president of the American Benedictine Academy, so I think that means work. So... Um, Anyway, but uh, tonight we're going to start a three-week uh, study of John 6. Um, so we've been in the Gospel of Mark uh, up through this point uh, this year, and, and now we've switched over for a few weeks to John 6. And, and the reason to spend some time thinking about John 6 is because it's the great I am the bread of life discourse. And so uh, we'll begin that study tonight, which of course is not to, to say that like the Old Testament reading wasn't very rich this week and what an incredible prayer that Paul offers us there in Ephesians 3. But I think this would be a good opportunity for us to focus in on John 6. Uh, we're a sacramental, uh, liturgical, Eucharistic church, and so this will be good for us to spend some time in John 6. So let's begin just by situating this uh, within the larger context of John. John 6 is actually part of a four-chapter subsection of the gospel itself. And in this section of the gospel, uh, beginning in chapter 5 actually, the text keeps telling us that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. So even though he doesn't come to Jerusalem and kind of stay there, he comes to Jerusalem and then we're told he comes again to Jerusalem. And so 5, 6... Uh, 7 and actually all the way through 10, chapter 10, has this little section in the Gospel of John. And, and each of these sections, in this section, he comes to Jerusalem and he's coming to Jerusalem to observe four liturgical festivals. To be honest with you, I didn't know that until this week. I hadn't, hadn't read that anywhere until this week. And so in chapter 5, he comes to observe the Sabbath. In chapter 6, he comes to observe Passover. That's our context for the next few weeks. Uh, chapter beginning at 7 and going about halfway through chapter 10, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, which of course um, commemorates the time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness, right, living in the tents and the booths. And so he comes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And then in chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, it's the Feast of the Dedication, or we often know it better as Hanukkah remembering uh, that time of deliverance by the Maccabees in the second century BC. And so that's what brings Jesus to Jerusalem in each of these contexts. And, and John 6, and of course we're picking up not with this entire section of the gospel, but just here in John 6, is, uh, is we have this reason for Jesus coming to Jerusalem is for the Passover. And so we learn in verses 1 through 15 about this miracle that Jesus performs. There's actually three miracles in tonight's 
uh, reading, right? It's the, the miracle of the bread and the fishes. Uh, it's the miracle of Jesus showing up on the water to his disciples, and then the miracle of the boat getting to the shore kind of immediately after Jesus addresses the disciples. But we're going to focus, and the text itself seems to mostly, right, so what comes in the next two weeks will show us that mostly what John wanted to focus on, it seems to be, was the feeding of the 5,000 plus people. And so some things we should notice in these first 15 verses of John 6. Uh, In verse 2, we're told a large crowd was following him. Now, Jesus had large crowds often following him. This was, this was nothing new. Um, uh, he he kind of walked around not only with his disciples, but with a group of people. Now, maybe this group was larger than normal. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to constantly walk around, you know, with 5,000 plus people kind of following you. I, I thought for those 10 years that I took students to Rome, having anywhere between 24 and 50 students behind you for two weeks was, was unnerving enough. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have 5,000 plus people just following you everywhere you went, right? But we learn from John, he tells us elsewhere, that this is not 5,000 plus followers of Jesus. These are not people who are convinced necessarily that he's the Messiah. They're not following him because of the, they've bought into the truthfulness of his message, if you will, Right? Matter of fact, John's gospel hasn't even been that public yet about Jesus' ministry. He's had a quiet conversation. Well, we, we know the prologue, the famous, you know, that before the beginning of the world, there was the word. And then we have uh, the, the private conversation with Nicodemus in three, the private conversation with the woman at the well in four. And then we get into these narratives centered on these liturgical festivals. So we're not, we haven't even exposed yet to Jesus' very public ministry, but he's got lots of people following him around. And the text tells us in other chapters, like chapter two and chapter four, that these people aren't necessarily believers. Actually, they might just be those who have a very superficial interest in Jesus, mostly probably because he was a miracle worker, right? You turn water into wine at a wedding, word might get around that you're good to have at a party. And so they're following Jesus around mostly because it seems that he's a miracle worker. Again, John is not saying that they're the devout. He's also not saying that some of those 5,000 plus people aren't dedicated followers. But at this point, it seems like this big crowd is just following Jesus around. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. This is a, a, you know, kind of, I guess, a normal thing to do if you're going to think about talking to these 5,000 people, right? If, if you're going to address the crowd, you need to get up to a higher place in order to address them. But commentators are pretty convinced that this reference by John, John loves to tell us where people are at. He, he tells us locations within the temple precinct that the other gospels don't tell us, right? Solomon's porch or something like that. He's very specific with his uh, locations. And so most scholars would agree or commentators would think that the reason John tells us that Jesus went up on a mountain is because John is already going to start framing this narrative in a mosaic-like way. He wants us to be thinking about Moses going up on Mount Sinai. Because as he unpacks this chapter, we're going to see that Jesus becomes a prophet like Moses kind of a figure, right? And this makes sense when it's the liturgical festival of Passover, right? That's the context. That's the bigger religious festival context that's going on. And so we're told in verse 3, Jesus goes up onto the mountain, brings up echoes of Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law. So John is now shifting us to start thinking about the person of Jesus, right? So if we were following this Jesus just as a miracle worker, but perhaps we were Jewish and knew the law, then we could begin to start making the connection as Jesus is 
he who will bring about our personal Passover, right? Our deliverance, our exodus, right, by the law. And so this really starts framing in many ways much of the Gospel of John. Third, we're told that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Again, that's our religious festival marker. And so John wants to unfold the spiritual relationship between Jesus and the Exodus. Right? There's, again, there's, there's no reason to put that in there if you're crafting the gospel unless you want your readers to understand that there's a connection between Jesus, this miracle worker, and the Passover of the Israelites from Egypt. And so John begins to start, again, talking about that spiritual relationship. And, and it is a spiritual relationship, but perhaps it's, it's even more, because in one sense, from a New Testament perspective, we read the Exodus of the Old Testament and understand it as unfinished. Right? That even many centuries later, the Exodus is still ongoing. Right? And, and I mean, maybe even to this day, still ongoing until the final consummation, right? I mean, the exodus from this, this place of, of sin and depravity, right, captured so well in our Old Testament lesson, and, and even that very dark Psalm 14 that we read tonight about our sinfulness, right? So as we continue to be delivered and expecting the promised land, we're still in the midst of the exodus that started way back with the Jewish people's deliverance. And so it's not just the Passover, though it's that historically, but it's the Passover for all of us, that the Passover lamb of Jesus Christ begins to, again, deliver people from their bondage to sin and to death. And so John wants us to see that, and so we have, again, this crowd of followers. Jesus goes up on the mountain like Moses to address these followers, and then John makes the explicit connection to the Passover. Verse 11, we're told, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were also seated. So at first, the disciples get busy thinking about a solution to this problem. Right? They didn't think ahead to call it a potluck and expect everyone to bring their own food. Instead, we now have 5,000 plus people and we really should feed them. So immediately they get busy thinking about how much money do we have? What are our resources? And of course, they're thinking of, of, of material resources. You know, what money do we have? Could, could we even find a place to go buy enough food for this number of people? Right? And so a couple of the disciples make recommendations as to how they can, can solve this problem. And, and uh, Jesus, right, who's going to literally feed 5,000 plus followers, and I say 5,000 plus because, again, that's mostly naming the men, and there would have been women and children there as well, right? And so they're, they're mostly there to see the Jesus of Nazareth show, right? If, if they're kind of hanger-ons who aren't really interested in Jesus the Messiah, they're there to see a show, and so they're there, and Jesus is going to literally feed them. But, and here's the important thing, here begins John's teaching about Jesus' teaching about his body and blood. So Jesus is going to do some teaching about his body and blood, but this is where John begins to teach us about what Jesus is teaching about his body and blood. Right? In other words, he uses this occasion to literally feed 5,000 people as an opportunity to, to do a more spiritual exercise, to, to go deeper than just simply feeding the people with bread and fish, but again, to transition to the body and blood of Jesus. And we see that explicitly, of course, when Jesus 
starts to say, I am the bread of life, he who eats me, right? And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. But John begins to do this, and this is necessary because the Gospel of John itself lacks an institution narrative of the Eucharist. John's Gospel never tells us that Jesus instituted the Eucharist, right? It doesn't have a Last Supper narrative. This is it, right? And and, I mean, like, Back when I was much younger and I kind of discovered this for myself, you know, I was excited because surely no one else had seen this. But it's, everyone has seen this, right? John doesn't have an institution narrative. And so people think John 6 is John's institution narrative. That John takes it out of the upper room because he wants, again, to do something bigger with Jesus like Moses and the Passover. And so he puts it in this, but, but this language, look at it, Jesus then took the loaves And when he had given thanks, when he had made Eucharist, that would literally be the Greek there, which I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that we need to think in terms of the Eucharist in this sense, but when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So that language of taking the elements and giving thanks to them and distributing them, that's the same language that we encounter in the institution narratives in the other gospels it's the same language we encounter again early in the book of acts right it's it's the same language from first corinthians where we get our words of institution from that we use in our eucharistic service here in a bit and so i think it's clear that jesus is making a point about himself that he's making a eucharistic point that this is a eucharistic passage and so I'm not going to argue that. I'm simply going to assume that this is what Jesus is doing. Again, mostly because John lacks it anywhere else. And John, of all the gospel writers, I think would be very concerned about having this in his gospel. So Jesus takes these loaves that have been gathered. He blesses them. He distributes them. And it's a miracle. Everyone gets to eat. Right, so whereas the disciples immediately started thinking about, you know, where's the nearest restaurant we can get some carryout from or something like that, and what kind of money do we have? And like most Christian ministries, not enough. And so um, instead, Jesus takes what's available and feeds everyone. So some things to note. First, Jesus is the ultimate source of this bread. And that's important to note. Jesus is the ultimate source for this bread. Because he, he makes enough for everyone, though he does use the matter of the loaves and the fishes, but it's he himself who makes enough for everyone. Right? So he, he takes what is already there, the loaves and the fishes they found, and he himself makes it possible to feed everyone. First of all, it would have been odd to encounter a boy who would have had enough food for 5,000 people. But nonetheless, the point here is to make sure that we understand that it's Jesus who provides the food, that the food didn't come from anywhere other than from the miraculous hand of Jesus himself. And again, let us note that through the matter, the loaves and the fish, that though those things are are scant, there's not a lot of them, Jesus produces a superabundance of bread. Right, I've often wondered about this, like, is Jesus bad at estimating crowd size, right? Is Jesus bad at estimating, you know, how, many, how much people are going to eat? Um, I'm going to say this because I don't think my mom actually listens to these recordings, so I think it's safe to say this. But we've noticed something about my mom as she's just gotten older, and that is if my mom says, don't worry about it, we'll handle the food, my wife goes into panic mode because she's like, your mom is terrible at estimating how much food she needs for a room full of people. 
She's used to feeding you and your dad, but then she invites everyone over, like when we're there on vacation, and there's never enough food, right? So the other night, my mom said, oh, yeah, we had, you know, David and them over, and then she described what they had, and Christina reads it to me, and she goes, that's not enough food. That's just not enough food. So, so Christina always likes to anticipate, you know, more than needed, and if you remember when I ordered pizza for us a couple of months ago, I estimated very generously about how much food people would eat, and we had plenty left over as well, but the point is, is that, you know, I've often wondered, why did Jesus make so much? You know, and I don't think I have an answer to that. I don't think the text is clear about that, but maybe it's because, again, the text wants to emphasize to us that Jesus is the source of it. And so, of course, there would be a superabundance of it, that, that Jesus, the Messiah of the world, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, of course, would make plenty, so much so that there would be a lot left over. The text even tells us everyone present ate as much as they wanted, and they were completely satisfied. So no one lacked. No one did without. No one had to take less simply because they were going to run out. There was plenty of food and still more to go around. So the disciples, as we know, let us know, gathered up the remaining fragments so that nothing was wasted. There's a lot we could learn from that, right? And that is one of the reasons, as an aside perhaps, of why we consume the leftover bread and the wine at the Eucharist, right? It's so that there is nothing is wasted, and, and so we consume it. It's consecrated, so we consume it. We don't waste it, right? And so Jesus' disciples gather up this, this, this remaining fragments, and turns out there's 12 baskets, and 12, of course, is a very ideal number in the Bible, 12, of, 12 tribes, 12 lots of things, and so it could be that, that these 12 baskets are saying something like, this was a complete miracle, Jesus did all that he needed to do, that it was sufficient, it was proper, it was done well, it was a complete miracle, I don't know about that, but, but the point is there's a lot left over and everyone had been fed and it all came from Jesus taking a scan amount of bread and fishes and making a super abundance of what people needed. And then lastly, let us note that the people make a connection between Jesus as prophet and the giving of manna to Moses and the people in the wilderness. Right? So when the people saw the sign that he had done, verse 14, when the people saw this miracle... They said, this is indeed the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet, Moses, who has come into the world. So the people make the connection that this is Moses. And why would they make that connection? Because who else asked for and provided bread, if you will, for people who are hungry? Moses did it in the wilderness with manna. And so they're like, hey, this sounds familiar. We know this story. We know the God who does this. And it's for the prophet Moses. This must be Moses. So Jesus is a prophet like Moses, which makes them want to make Jesus their king, in verse 15, in order for him to deliver them from the Romans. In other words, we're enslaved again. We need another exodus. We need you, Jesus, as Moses, to deliver us. Let's make him our king. And of course, Jesus withdraws, because that's not what he's here for. But here, in these last couple of verses where the people want to make Jesus their king, I think it becomes the most clear as to what just transpired in the sense of reading this passage in light of the Old Testament, that again, if going up on the mountain wasn't enough to make us think of Moses, 
right? That if the reference to the Passover wasn't enough to make us think of Moses, the crowd thinks of Jesus as Moses. We are now squarely thinking about Jesus as Moses, the prophet in the wilderness, feeding the people, delivering them from their oppressors. And these people must feel oppressed because they want to make Jesus their king, and they were going to come and take him by force, but he quickly leaves to avoid that. Because Jesus knows that the deliverance they need is not just deliverance from the Romans, but it's the spiritual deliverance that will come about through his broken body and blood, both literally in the crucifixion, but spiritually, eucharistically, through the gift of the body and blood in the Eucharist. And so as tonight's passage points us to begin to think about, and we we haven't even began to deal with Jesus' own words yet, which we'll look at in the next two weeks, we are are clearly in the realm of the imagery of Jesus as the prophet like Moses who is delivering his people through his body and blood. And we know again that that's literally through his death and resurrection, but we also will come to see that Jesus means this spiritually. That here he is talking about the Eucharist, that here in John he is laying forth his institution narrative for the Eucharist. I just happened to be reading today, the sermon was done, I was reading today a book that a priest mentor friend of mine had recommended, Evelyn Underhill's Worship. If you've never read Evelyn Underhill, I recommend you do. It's someone I had heard about, but until Father Larry told me to start reading her, I hadn't done it, but I'm reading her book, Worship, and and she's talking about worship today, obviously, but she's talking about the history of Western worship and, and how by the fourth century it very much became Eucharistically centered, that it was both a balance between you know, the incarnated, the incarnational Jesus, right? The Jesus who walked before us, but also the resurrected spiritual Jesus who we, who we celebrate and who we remember in the Eucharist. And then she said, and cap, this is all captured so well in the beautiful prayer from Ephesians 3. And I said, wait, that's tonight's epistle reading. That's incredible. So let me close by reading the, uh, the reading from Ephesians by the Apostle Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in our inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, That being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So in the weeks ahead, may we reflect on Jesus, the miracle worker, Jesus, the the prophet, but may we also keep before us Jesus who feeds us with his body and his blood. And tonight, as we celebrate that, we will be anticipating his very words to us in the next couple of weeks. And as he does that, may we give thanks to God for our own Passover and deliverance through his broken body. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.